You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we thank You for a beautiful day, for the freedom to gather here together and worship You. We thank You for the privilege that it is to be here, to fellowship around Your Word and around Your Son. We thank You for what You have given to us and offered to us in the Gospel. And we ask now that You would be present here with Your people and that our time would be well spent and pleasing to You, would be edifying to us and equipping to this body. And we ask, Lord, that You would watch over us this day and watch over our time here And may you visit us and open your word to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jess has been going through kind of some difficult things in Romans, and maybe you don't have any questions about anything in the book of Romans. Or maybe you do. So now would be the time to ask them. We could turn on the light back there, maybe. Ray. If you were sharing the gospel with a Mormon, would Galatians chapter 1 be a good place to take them as far as Paul saying, if we are angel from heaven preaching the gospel to you, then the gospel that we've preached, let him be accursed. And I would say when, when witnessing to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Catholic and sharing the gospel with anybody of any background, it's always the same. We're only given one gospel to share. And so I stay away from entirely Mormon doctrine and Mormon issues, unless they want to discuss a particular point of the doctrine, then I'm happy to discuss that with them. But if you're just wanting to share the gospel, then I think the best way to share the gospel is just to get right into the law and move from the law into the gospel. And uh, you can get to a point with Mormons where you have to point out that their gospel is a different gospel, and if it is a different gospel, then it falls under the condemnation of Galatians 1. And it's appropriate to point that out, but I'm not sure that's a good place to start. And I, nor is it a good place to start either with Jehovah's Witnesses or with Mormons. It's not a good place to start on where we differ. So I, I, I may not even necessarily bring those up. I want to get right around to how, how do you expect to get into heaven? And it will always boil down to I'm a good person and I'm doing good things. And so that's when you take them through the law. If you're a good person, then let's see if you've kept the commandments. So let's just go through a few of the Ten Commandments. And you walk them through a few of the Ten Commandments and it turns out they're not a good person. And then you springboard right off of that into the gospel, so that they understand that. And and uh, oh, I heard a good illustration about this. Give me just a second. Uh, oh, if you want to, if a man has a crooked stick and he doesn't see that it's crooked, the best thing to do is not to argue with him about his stick, but to hold up a straight stick next to his crooked one. And I think that that's a good illustration. You present the true gospel. And they will be able, once you present the true gospel, they will be able to see, oh, my stick is crooked. I don't have something that's true. They're looking at a crooked stick and they think it's true. But all you need to do is not analyze the crooks in their stick, but hold up a straight stick and they'll be able to see that. I think that's the best and easiest way to handle the presentation of the gospel with anybody. Um, Whether it's a Mormon Jehovah's Witness, 
a homosexual, a new ager, name it. You just say, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And begin there. Peg? I think it's appropriate to continue until the point where they begin to trample it underfoot. And then there has to be a distinction. When somebody rejects something, sometimes they're rejecting it, but you don't know what's going on in their mind and their heart. And as long as they're not blaspheming or trampling it underfoot while they're rejecting it, I think it's appropriate to continue the overtures and continue the discussion. But just because somebody says, no, I don't believe that, I don't think, it's, I don't think that that's when you dust your feet off and say, no, no more with you. I think it's appropriate to continue to, to drive at that issue until they get to the point where they're hostile and their rejection is trampling pearls underneath their feet. Then I think it's time that you stop and you say, I mean, Paul did that with the Jews in Antioch in Acts 4, 13. He said, fine, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he turned and he went another way. So I think it's appropriate to do that once the rejection reaches the point of blasphemy. Then I think you, then I think it's time to pull back. But at the same time, you don't cease to pray for them because I'm sure that Saul of, I know that Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer before he became a believer. And I'm sure there are people who would have turned and walked away from him and said never, but yet you always, you always believe that God can do that with anybody. Turn them around. Carol. That show that it's not God's will that everybody be healed? Okay, uh, yeah, uh, okay, so two issues dealing with the issue of does God expect all Christians to be well all the time? And the other issue is uh, how then do you try and bring comfort to somebody who's in a situation where they have a loved one who's a Christian and who is ill? So, and is angry. Okay, so let's deal with the first one. The, the first one, how, how do you show to somebody that the Bible doesn't teach that God is to, God will heal all Christians all the time and that sometimes it's God's will that we be sick? And I would point to the life, I would point to two things. First, as you go through the, the gospel, uh, the book of Acts, I can't think of a single healing in the book of Acts that took place on a believer. Whether it's the beginning of the man who was lame at the temple gate, uh, or uh, Publius's father-in-law on the island of Malta, and those are the, that's the first and the last. I can't think of any miracle in between that was done on a believer. Lazarus is the Gospel of John. So this is I'm just something different than the ministry of the apostles. So I'm, I'm dealing with stuff post-Pentecost, after Pentecost. Um, and the raising of Dorcas, maybe that's an exception. But it seems that the healing ministry was done by the apostles, not for the sake of believers, but to unbelievers, predominantly in the book of Acts. But then when it comes to believers in the New Testament, you have Paul saying in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. So here was an apostle who obviously had healed people previously, who had a good friend in Miletus that was sick, and Paul didn't heal him. Either he didn't heal him or he couldn't heal him, but he didn't heal him, and it wasn't God's will for Trophimus to be healed. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4. You have Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says he was sick even to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and restored him. Um, Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your, your stomach ailments. But Paul didn't send Timothy to a healer or suggest that Timothy should be healed. 
but that he should treat it um, in a way that is that has nothing to do with the supernatural healing, which was just drinking wine alongside of your water for your stomach's sake. Uh, and I think you could argue from James chapter 5 with the anointing of oil that it has to do with the uh, proper application of medicinal wisdom and skill and calling in the elders to pray. But even there, James suggests that it's possible that somebody could die even if the elders pray. It's not always God's will to heal every believer. So I think that those four instances should be sufficient. I would think. And so she's mad that God didn't heal them. Uh, How do you... The problem, the core problem there then is um, that they, she has a skewed view of God and God's will and God's sovereignty and what the purpose of disease and sickness is. Um, and you got to wonder, is she, is she mad at God because God's not doing what she wants or is she mad at because her theology is not working? Her theology obviously isn't working. So the only res- the only response then is to get mad at God because He's in some way let you down or not fulfilled your expectations. And I think the only thing you can do there is just show her truth from Scripture that you know you're you're believing in a false god. It's idolatry when you believe in a god that has not promised to do what He's promised to do. That's idolatry at its heart. So she's mad at an idol. I can understand being upset or vexed over somebody who's sick and ill, but. Eventually, you've got to stop and say, who is my God and what, what is the purpose of illness? And we can't all live forever. We're not promised that we're going to live forever. We have to die from something. Well, yeah, people are watching on TV, TBN and Joel Osteen, and they're getting this, this drummed into them that God wants your best life now, and you don't find that in the New Testament. I mean, that, that type of gospel doesn't work anywhere else in the world but Western, the Western Hemisphere in America and Canada. I mean, I heard an interview, I was listening to an interview on the radio with a missionary who spent a lot of time down in Africa, and uh, the, the word faith movement is big in Africa, and it's making uh, big strides over there, but people are also seeing it for the shallowness that it is. And really what they want is American-style prosperity, but it's something entirely detached from the New Testament. I mean, you, don't get, you can't read through the book of Acts and think that Paul was living his best life now, because he wasn't. That's not that's not a good life by any by any human measure by any earthly measure. The thorn of the flesh, yeah. That's another example. Paul's thorn in the flesh, and he pled with the Lord, and the Lord said, "No, I'm, I give you the thorn because so that you might know my strength." And somebody who believes that God should heal every Christian every time they get sick doesn't understand the role of suffering and the purpose of suffering, and that there's a higher there's a higher calling to what we suffer. That pain is not, it's an unwelcome intruder into our world, but it's not something that's outside of God's control and it's not something that God has not purposed to use. He's purposed to use it. Ray. Is, you pray over somebody for healing. There's nothing, uh, yeah, the question is when you pray over somebody for healing, is it necessary or essential that you lay hands on them? Um, the laying on of hands in Scripture is nothing mystical, and it's nothing that is more significant than the prayer. It's not like not laying on hands negates the prayer. Laying on of hands symbolizes two things in Scripture that I can think of off the top of my head. One of them is identification. When you lay hands on a man, this is how Paul used it in 1 Timothy, lay hands on no man suddenly, that means identify with yourself with no man quickly. 
And it also has to do with commissioning or um, putting somebody into service. That's how they would do it. Laying on of hands is a way of symbolizing. We we representing ourselves or associating ourselves with this individual and we're commissioning them to this role of service or this action that we believe the Spirit of God has called them to. So laying on of hands symbolized something, but it's not a mystical uh, power conveying action in and of itself. It's the prayer and what you see God doing and whether the hands are there or not. I mean, what if you had a pastor with no arms? Would he be unable to heal anybody or pray over anybody effectively? To me, that seems silly. Because it's not the laying on of hands that is significant. It's the, it is significant in what it symbolizes, but it's the prayer and what God is doing in it and the faith that is the, the issue. Ray? Yeah, we have the time on it. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch. The question is, why do I believe that the gifts, that certain gifts, uh, the, the, uh, the sign gifts, thank you, the sign gifts, are, have ceased or are no longer operative. At least, and I have to qualify, at least in the same fashion that they were in the New Testament, early New Testament. Let me, I'd have to offer that sort of footnote there. And from 1 Corinthians 13, and so let me kind of, I don't have all my Greek understanding of 1 Corinthians 13 ready at my fingertips, but let me give you sort of the Cliff's Notes version of it. In the New Testament, gifts were given to the church, and there were gifts of apostle and prophet, and teacher, Gifts of miracles, like miracles and uh, healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, prophecy, uh, knowledge. Those are what we call sign gifts. I'm trying to make sure I don't forget any off the top of my head here. Then you had what I believe are gifts that are that started at Pentecost, but also continue through till today. The gift of teaching, the gift of administration, the gift of helps and service, uh, the gift of, gifts of leadership. Um, other sort of spiritual gifts. I draw a distinction between sign gifts that were given for a purpose for a time and gifts that were given for the whole period of church history up until the coming of the Lord. And I make that distinction because in the New Testament, you have sign gifts that were given for a specific purpose. Once that purpose was accomplished, there's no more need for the gift. Tongues is one of those. Tongues had a certain specific role. It was given to... It was given as a sign, not for believers, but to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's verse 26. And Paul quotes the Old Testament with, um, uh, from Isaiah. And Paul says that tongues are for a sign and they're given for a specific purpose. The purpose of tongues was as a sign of judgment to unbelieving Jews primarily. And it functioned. Paul has spoken in tongues. Uh, of course, on the day of Pentecost, you have him speaking in tongues. I believe that tongues was a rare gift. I don't believe it was common in the New Testament era even. Out of all of the New Testament, you have tongues mentioned in only one book, 1 Corinthians, and you have it mentioned only three times specifically, maybe a fourth time in the book of Acts, and that's Acts 2, Acts 8. Some people try and read tongues into Acts 8, but they're not mentioned there. It's just mentioned other supernatural manifestations. And then Acts 10 and Acts 19. Acts 2 being Pentecost, Acts 10 being the speaking of tongues by Cornelius, and Acts 19 being the apostles or disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus when Paul ran into them there. So there's a reason why tongues were given. It was to, those, that sign gift was a revelatory gift and it was a sign of judgment to unbelieving Jews. And when you see it in the book of Acts, it functions in that capacity. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 argues that tongues will pass away. So the question among interpreters is, 
when did tongues or when will tongues pass away? Now, charismatics would like to say, and, and there are a few non-charismatics who also would say this, that tongues were, will be done away with when the Lord returns. And that's the coming of that which is perfect. I believe that the coming of that which is perfect is not the Lord, but the completion of the New Testament canon, the Scriptures. And that there's an argument from the different tenses of the Greek words and the different Greek words that Paul uses to speak of prophecy and knowledge and tongues. And he, he, he speaks of prophecy, I think it is, and knowledge, which will... No, I'm... You know what, I'm not even going to try and, I'm not even going to try and say it because I'm probably going to get it wrong. But there's a distinction in how Paul addresses how each one of those is going to be done away with. Basically saying that tongues will be done away with by something else. Something else is coming which will render tongues obsolete and unnecessary. Um, even those who would like to say that tongues are still active today have to say, almost without exception, they have to say that tongues today is different than tongues in the New Testament. Tongues today is a heavenly prayer language. Tongues in the New Testament was actual languages because they can't honestly argue from the book of Acts that the gift of tongues was a heavenly prayer language because the people who were speaking in tongues on Pentecost and with Cornelius and the disciples of John the Baptist, it wasn't a prayer language. It was an actual human language dialect that they were speaking. But then they go to 1 Corinthians 14 and they say, here, Paul speaks of speaking with the tongues of angels. And he's describing now tongues changed their, their focus and now they are a prayer language, which is, you can't make that case from 1 Corinthians 14. So tongues were rare. Tongues had a specific purpose. The purpose has been accomplished. We don't see the gift of tongues today operating like it did in the New Testament. You go into a charismatic church, you don't see somebody standing up and speaking in a tongue and another person interpreting. You see everybody speaking in tongues. Um, once in a while, you'll see somebody get up and try and interpret what was spoken. And then once they interpret it, my next question is, why was that necessary? What was, what was accomplished by this? Is, if this is a revelation from God, then what does that say about this? It has to say that this is insufficient. So, if that's a revelation from God and we needed that, it's because what we've already been given is not sufficient. And if this is sufficient, then why do I need that? If this is sufficient, sit down, save your breath to cool your porridge. I'm not interested in anything that you have to say because I have everything I need. And the only reason that would be necessary is if I don't already have everything I need. And so once I have everything I need, what other need is there for prophecy as a function of the New Testament? or for tongues, or any other revelatory gift, or a word of the Lord. He spoke to me and he said this. Those things aren't necessary. Somebody stands up and says, God just spoke to me and he told me this. Well, that says something implicitly about this. If God needs to speak to you to tell us something, it's because this isn't enough. And if this is enough, then sit down and keep your mouth shut because I'm not interested in what you think God might be saying to you. And I don't mean any disrespect for that, but you just can't say that I had this bubble in my tummy and all of a sudden God has spoken to me. I just, I don't believe that. I believe the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness and we have everything we need. Everything pertaining to that. I need no additional word from God. Uh, Diane. Yeah, it becomes tongues with the speaking in tongues and the interpreting, uh, interpreting of tongues. It becomes a Pandora's box of whoever wants to stand up and give an interpretation of that. 
Because supposedly the person speaking in the tongue doesn't have a clue what they're saying. They're just saying a heavenly language. They don't know what they're saying. If they knew what they were saying, they should say it in English so everybody can understand. But they get up and they say it, and then somebody else has to interpret it. Well, now the interpreter stands up and he gives his piece. Well, I don't know. I just don't. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have the more sure word. And he, he says, look, I heard, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, 2 Peter chapter 1, let me give you the paraphrase. He says, I was on the mountaintop and I saw the transfigured Christ. We heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Man, you do not get a better experience than that. To hear the voice of the father say of the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter could testify and say, this is what I experienced. This is what I saw. And this is what I heard. But then Peter says, but you have the more sure word given to you. So as reliable as Peter's testimony would be, he doesn't point to his testimony or his experience or what he heard God say. He points all of his readers back to the Scriptures. He says, this is the Word of God and this is more sure than any experience. Every experience can be a deception. There is no experience that you have ever had or will have that is not subject to demonic or satanic influence or deception. There's no voice you've ever heard in your head that cannot be subject to satanic deception. You have no way of discerning that. You have no way of knowing if God is speaking to you in your head or in your mind because there's no red light that goes on on your forehead which indicates that God now is giving you revelation. But I know when God has spoken to me. I know this book He's spoken. So this is the more sure word. And the minute you open up the door of I'm getting private revelations from God, it's only a matter of time, and I have seen this without exception, it is only a matter of time before what you are hearing from God is going to contradict what is revealed in Scripture. And when that happens, guess which one takes precedence? Guess. 100% of the time, it's what I heard from God. Because people get so used to hearing, the, getting the little red bat phone, the little messages from God, that, man, that has to be real. That has to be the real deal. And so it must be His interpretation of Scripture. Or that doesn't apply to me, or that doesn't apply in this context. It's just a matter of time. Sorry, Dorothy, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Dorothy's observation, people who do that and think that they're not in the Scriptures, they don't know the Scriptures. I think that that theology actually denigrates Bible study. Why would I search this book if I can get it directly from heaven through a voice? Because searching this book, is, it is hard work. So if I want to know what type of spouse should I marry? Man, that's going to be a study, right? You have to go through Proverbs. You're going to have to... I'm not suggesting it's hard to find. I didn't have any hard time finding that spouse. So that's not what I'm saying, so don't laugh. But I mean, it's a hard study to figure out what does the Bible say about any subject. Because you've got to go and you've got to do a systematic, topical study of passages in their context and exegete from the text. What does this mean? And what does the Bible say about this to make sure I got it nailed down? That's hard work. It takes hours of work to do that. But why would I go through all that work if I can just get a little quiver in my liver and get it straight from heaven. Why would I do that? That's hours of wasted time spent. If I'm just going to get it from heaven anyway, why does it matter what the Bible says about it? I'm just not going to take the time to, to study it. Peg. 
That is a great, that's a great observation. I've made this one before. Tongues is the only gift that they say you have to learn how to use. Every other gift manifests itself in the body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, not everybody speaks in tongues. Do all have the gift of teaching? Do all have the gift of prophecy? And do all have this gift? And he goes through a list and the answer to every one of those is no. And then he says, do all speak in tongues? And all of a sudden people say, yeah. When all the rest of those is no, not every, there's no gift that is possessed by everybody. I cannot think of a single spiritual gift that's possessed by everybody. Yeah, and the least of the gifts. It's better to speak ten words with an, your understanding. I can profit you more by speaking a hundred words to you in an English language that you can understand than I can speaking to you for forty hours in a tongue. It doesn't profit you at all. But, it, it doesn't. And that's why Paul says if somebody walks in, then they think you're insane. They think they've walked into an insane asylum. They think you're crazy because they walk into your congregation. They see all of this. This is to Corinth. They see all of this pandemonium in the congregation. Everybody can't not wait, being able to wait till they can speak in tongues and say their peace. And Paul says people walk away from that thinking that you're, you're crazy. Whereas if you, they walk in and they hear a teacher stand up, and preach the word and present the gospel, then they fall under conviction. They don't think you're crazy. They fall under conviction. And, and that is why teaching is far more edifying, far more productive than a tongue is. Or any language. Thomas. Well, in all fairness, if we had a room of, equal, of uh, double the size with just as many charismatic Pentecostals in it as we have of us here, my presentation would be a lot different. And it's not that it would be different in content, but it would be different in spirit. I'm aggressively arguing in this context for a certain perspective. But when I've sat down and talked with, I've talked with guys that think that tongues are for today. And we've had very, not uh, argumentative or heated, but passionate and aggressive conversations about the subject. And as long as I can walk away from them agreeing to disagree and be friends and realize there's no offense on either side of this argument, then I'm happy. But if I had somebody who I thought was so sensitive to this stuff that, man, every sentence I said was offensive, I wouldn't even discuss it with them. Because if they're that, if they're that sensitive to it, I might try and bring a little bit of truth. But I, I wouldn't. Because this is not an issue that I'm out to try and win the day on. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and sign gifts, and let me deal with sign gifts as different, distinct from tongues for just a second. Uh, sign gifts, miracles were performed in the book of Acts by the apostles and with rare exception by individuals who were connected so closely to the apostolic ministry that they basically, the, the, it was an apostle's sidekick as it were. Uh, Barnabas and Philip were the two exceptions in the book of Acts. Other than that, every other miracle was performed by an apostle. In fact, Luke when he mentions miracles several times in the book of Acts, he mentions it was performed by the apostles. And he distinguishes the apostles as the ones who performed the miracles. The purpose of miracles in the New Testament always was to authenticate the messenger. The messenger came with the revelation from God. How did you, sitting there, know that this guy who claimed to speak from God and this guy who claimed to speak from God, how would you know which one of them was the real revelator, the real God spokesman, the one who could perform authentic miracles? That's why Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. Look at the works that I do. They attest. They testify as to whether I am possessed by Beelzebub or whether I'm sent from God. I'm bread come down from heaven. But look at the things that I do. 
And same thing with the apostles. The apostles were able to authenticate the revelation because they had the ability to perform signs and wonders. And, and Paul speaks of miracles as signs of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3, 4, somewhere in there, 2, 2 Corinthians, read the whole book, you'll see it. The uh, <laughs> signs of an apostle were performed among you. How do you distinguish a true apostle from a false apostle? A true apostle was able to perform signs. If everybody in the New Testament church was able to perform signs, if everybody today can perform signs, if special miracle workers today can perform signs, then there is no distinction between apostles and non-apostles. But Paul speaks of miracles as being the signs of an apostle. These things are the seal of my apostleship. You look at the signs that I have performed and they speak, um, they speak for me. Uh, Acts chapter 15, when dealing with the issue of circumcision, Paul, in order to authenticate the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles, he and Barnabas pointed to the signs that they had done among the Gentiles. These are the wonders that God worked among the Gentiles. This is evidence that we have the true gospel because at stake in Acts 15 was whose gospel is true, the Judaizers who are adding circumcision to it or the apostles, Paul and Barnabas and the others who were preaching to the Gentiles that a man didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. And there the authentication of the true gospel was the ability to perform signs. Yeah, tongues will cease. The question among interpreters is when did they cease or will they cease? That's the issue. And you've got speaking tongues? And you've been living off that ever since, haven't you, Ray? (laughs) You've been living off that ever since, haven't you? (laughs) Uh, Chris had one. Do you have something on that, Chris? Uh, Oh, good question. Do I think that the message is still authenticated today by miracles? I would say no, the message doesn't need to be authenticated because it's been once for all given authenticated, and we have that given to us now. So there's no need today to continue to authenticate that which we have today. Um, Some people would say, well, you go on to a mission field, and I've heard this argument, you go on to a mission field where they've never had the Bible, and they've never heard it, and that, that message will not be authenticated unless we're able to perform signs and wonders today. But then you get back to, okay, well, what is the purpose of signs and wonders, and who in the Bible did them? And that is back to what we just talked about a second ago, which is the apostles. I don't think that there's any need to continue to authenticate it because it's been authenticated. During the lifetime of the apostles, we know by the testimony of eyewitnesses who the spokesmen from God are. So we, we have that authenticated now. There's no need to continue to authenticate it. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> uh, Say that again. Oh, right. Yeah, I still believe that miracles happen. Not parting of the sea type miracles. But I still believe that miracles happen. Every time somebody gets saved is a miracle. When somebody gets saved and the demons leave, that's a miracle. Because the Bible describes exorcisms as a a miracle. Uh, Anytime somebody is healed from a disease, 
that's a miracle. God can do that, and I think He does it all the time, all over the world. Every day, I think He does it hundreds or thousands of times. He does things that are beyond explanation. But I don't believe that He has miracle workers that He's currently working through as divinely sent messengers to authenticate their message. Um, now God doesn't need to work through those men to authenticate the message. The message has been given and authenticated. I can read through the book of Acts and I can say, okay, Peter, James, John, Paul are divine messengers because they perform signs. And how do we know that they were divine messengers? Because they perform signs. So what they wrote and what they said, speaking from God, has been authenticated. I, that's, the, that's, the, that's the certificate of authenticity upon their books. I can now accept that book as being from God because they spoke from God and they showed that they spoke from God. Uh, I don't need anybody, let me put it, let me ratchet up a notch, I don't need anybody to authenticate the words of Jesus. I have them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So today, if you say Jesus said this and somebody says, prove it, I don't believe it. What are you going to do? Turn water into wine? Or multiply bread and fish? Are you going to perform a sign to try and prove to them that Jesus said this? No, He said it. We have it written down. It's the more sure word. And if you, if you cannot accept that, then you're not going to accept that testimony even if somebody rises from the dead. I mean, they had, that's why Jesus pointed back to Moses and the prophets. He said they have Moses and the prophets. And if they're not going to accept that testimony, they won't accept if somebody rises from the dead. Pull out all the authenticating evidence that you want. It's not going to change a hard heart because the Bible is the Word of God. It's the power of God into salvation. The Bible is the two-edged sword. That today is all we need. A miracle, a false sign, or any kind of authentication is just, to me, that's it's unnecessary because the Bible is now, today, a self-authenticated testimony of the Word of God. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think a lot of times we minimize our view of Scripture by thinking, somehow I've got to prove this. Or somehow I've got to, I've got to find a way of winning this argument without bringing Scripture into the debate. And I think that that's a completely wrong approach. When we're discussing the, the life issue or the homosexual agenda issue, I've heard Christian apologists and, and culture warriors trying to argue against the homosexual agenda without using the Bible. They don't want to use the Bible. And I think that's foolishness. That's going into the battle without your sword. That's agreeing to lay down your weapons at the door and meet them on their turf with their weapons. And I disagree with that entirely. I said bring the Bible into it. Don't even bother speaking on the homosexual issue or the lesbian issue or the adoption issue or the abortion issue or any issue of our day unless you're willing to bring the Bible into it because that's a two-edged sword. And you say, well, they don't believe the Bible. It doesn't matter. If somebody, if a thief holds a gun to my head and says, give me your wallet, I'll say, well, I don't believe in guns. He still has the gun and it's a gun whether I believe it's a gun or I'm going to believe he's going to use it or not. It's the same thing with the Bible. You go and you preach it and you teach it and you bring it into the argument and they don't believe the Bible. Well, that's fine. I'm still wielding the sword. And that's the most powerful weapon we have. Right. Right. Am I making sense yet, Chris? Right. We, we talked about that. at the, It was actually at the end of the book of Acts, after the last miracle in the book of Acts. We talked about our miracles for today. And as Christians, we got to be we got to be careful. I think most of our questions about miracles fade away when we understand the difference between providence and what is miraculous. And uh, those two messages are online, by the way. They're always up online just because they, we kind of dealt with that subject of miracles very thoroughly. 
we, a lot of times Christians look at providence and we say that was a miracle. Well, that's a misuse of the term miracle. A miracle is a certain animal. Providence is a, another animal. Sometimes they look alike, but they operate entirely differently and they have entirely different purposes. Um, we pray for a healing for an illness. And the person goes to the doctor and they get the x-rays and the MRI and they get the treatment and God uses providence to heal that individual. It was a healing nonetheless, but it happened through providence and not through a miracle. We prayed for it. We prayed for it and it happened. But that doesn't make it a miracle. Sometimes God does miracles through providence. He supernaturally does things in a providential way. Right, and providence is providence sometimes has all the marks of the mundane. Sometimes providence you can't even see unless you're looking for it. But it, it's not connected in any way to anything supernatural. It's just the order and the occurrence of, of very natural events that unfold in a very natural way to accomplish a very supernatural result. And, and we look at the supernatural result and it catches us and then we say, well, if we just stepped back and looked at the whole story for a bit, we would see the providential hand of God in orchestrating all of these events together. And I gave an illustration in that, in that message, and, and maybe some of you forgot this, so let me give this real quick. When I was at Bible college, I was um, poor. I've mentioned that before. I mean poor, poor. And I had run out of change to do my laundry. And all of the washers and dryers were coin-operated, so I would actually sit in the shower with my laundry and some soap that I would uh, b- borrow, beg, or steal from somebody else and scrub up my clothes and hang them up to dry in my room because I didn't have any coins. And I got to, I got down to my last pair of underwear. I pulled it out of the closet, off the shelf, my last pair of underwear, and I said, Lord, unless you provide for me some change, I am not going to be able to do laundry. I'm either going to have to wear this pair two days in a row or I'm going to have to go into the shower once again tonight and do my laundry. And that day I went to the mailbox, and in the mailbox was a care package from Kootenai Community Church, and in it was a collection of, I don't know, it was probably 25 or 30 bucks, full of change and some dollar bills and stuff like that, and well, some other things, and the cards that were thinking of you and praying for you. And I opened that up, and my first instinct was, oh, this is a miracle. But is that miraculous? It's nothing miraculous that happened. People put money in a box, and they put it in an envelope, and they sent it up there, and the Postal Service brought it up there. But what's the providence behind that? The providence behind that is that my underwear ran out at just the right day and Canada Post was late with their mail delivery on just the right day so that all of that would come together and I would see the hand of God in caring for me. It was providential. Weeks before I ran out of underwear, God was putting it upon the hearts of people here to care for me in that way and to think of me and to send money up to me. So in his providence, he was working for weeks before I had a need. So that when I had a need, the provision would be there at just the right time. That's not miraculous. It's providential. Now, a miracle would be if somebody showed up on the scene and said, and create money out of thin air. That would be a miracle. But providence is God providing to very natural means. What did you say? Sorry, that would cause inflation. <laughs> cause inflation. Right. And you've got to be the President of the United States to do that, too. God provides, uh, God provided through a very natural means in a very natural way without any supernatural occurrences. But the timing was perfect and it was providential. There's a difference between those two. It would be wrong to call that provision miraculous. That's not a miracle in the New Testament sense. 
A miracle is something of a, it's an entirely different animal. Debbie. Yeah, it's a very good reminder. Sometimes we get so familiar with what we have that we take it for granted and we forget what we possess because it's just another book that sits on our shelf. And that was brought home uh, recently, a couple years back. I think it was now a couple summers ago when uh, Gordon and Nancy Hunt were here and they mentioned, this is while I was preaching through Philippians, they mentioned that the last book that came off the press for the Manhui was the book of Philippians in their own language. He got up and he read, I think from Philippians chapter 1 in Manhui, and that was the book that had just gone to press before he came back here. And I just, man, that choked me up in a big way because I thought, yeah, I take that for granted. I mean, I got every direction I turn in my house, I could run into a Bible. Yeah, very good reminder. One more question. It'll take 60 seconds or less to answer. Lanny, you finally got yours. All right. Well, this is milk compared to all that meat. Oh. <laughs> when I was reading in Psalms, I Psalm 86, 8. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why they, I would suggest probably that works is a typo. Capitalized works is a typo. Usually, modern translators in the New King James, NSB, and NIV will translate pronouns that refer to God or titles that refer to God or God's name, but not usually, uh, I mean, God's name is in Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah, um, or the term God, but not, not works or your activities or your power. Power works and activities, those things are not necessarily capitalized. Yeah, I don't know why works is capitalized there. It's not capitalized by NASB either. So, you're, the, you're unique among everybody else, Lanny. <laughs> What's that? Jess has it? New King James. That's why I say it's probably a typo. Yeah. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. It's been fun. Any other thing else real quick before we get done? All right. Father, we do thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for the fellowship that we can enjoy around it. You have caused us to be born again through Your Word, which is living truth, not by a perishable seed, but by the imperishable living and abiding Word of God. We thank You that it is powerful, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we thank You for the blessing which we take uh, for granted so often, that of having Your Word in our own language and so many copies and so many different translations of it. We become oftentimes all too familiar with it. We pray that You would make us to remember how greatly blessed we are to have it. Thank You, Father, for the blessing that it is to be Your child through that Word and through that testimony. We thank You that it is true and living. And we ask now that You would bless our time of fellowship for the rest of this morning around it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.